I'm excited about Titus because uh, just getting a chance to really uh, look into who Titus was, uh, there isn't a whole lot of information about him directly. A lot of it is inferred by references uh, to Titus by Paul and and other uh, areas of Scripture. Uh, But the the guy seemed to be a very tough, um, very resilient man of faith. Uh, I don't don't know if he was intimidating looking, uh, but he would often be placed in very difficult circumstances to go and fix it, to go and be used by God to handle very hard circumstances, which we'll see a couple here in just a minute. But uh, I'm, I'm, I feel very uh, excited to share about him because I kind of, I, I kind of want to meet someone like this. I, I, I uh, growing up, there was a man in our church named Cecil Cowley, uh, and uh, I remember he was a, the most gentlest of teddy bears in the world. But if he had a serious conversation with you, you had, I mean, he had your undivided attention. Uh, I, I, we used to have a, a church uh, key for the church van, and uh, I was given the privilege of being in charge of the church van. And uh, so he gave me the key, or the pastor gave me the keys, and um, I'd never fill up the, ga- the, the gas tank. Uh, I'd always take uh, our, our, our uh, young adults to go uh, eat somewhere and never fill it out, but I'll use the church van to go do that. They didn't say I couldn't, yeah, uh, but uh, I remember one, one time he came to get the keys for me. With no explanations, hey, Zeke, do you have the key to the church van? I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, let me have it. Actually, it was more like this. I mean, there was, there was, no, there was no questioning. <laughs> I, didn't even have to, I didn't even have to ask him, you know, what is the reason why. It was just that kind of presence. I don't know if Titus had that kind of presence with people around him, but Paul had that kind of confidence in him. And would put him in very difficult situations to go straighten things out. And that's what's happening in this, in this passage. Uh, in this book, we get to see Paul instructing Titus, who was well built, it seems, to handle a situation like this, but given very specific instructions on how to do so in this particular place. So Titus is a letter. It is an epistle written by Paul around 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Titus himself was from Greece. Uh, He was a follower of Christ under the ministry of uh, the Apostle Paul. And uh, he and Paul were apparently very close. There was a lot of trust in that love relationship that they had with one another. They they traveled a lot together in the spreading of God's truth. Like I said, in difficult situations sometimes. Uh, Paul had a lot of confidence, a lot of trust in his companion of Titus. uh, Which um, is made especially evident when Paul leaves Titus. Crete, and we'll see why here in, in a minute. So let's talk about Crete a little bit. What, what was this place like? Uh, the people of Crete, what were they like? What was this area like? If you were to go to this place, what would you experience, uh, at least at the time of this writing? Uh, Crete is a large mountainous island in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it was surrounded by many cities that relied heavily on its many harbors. So there's a lot of coming in and out of that area. It kind of reminds me of the Isthmus uh, land bridge of Corinth and having some of the same struggles, some, uh, some of the same morality struggles that Corinth had. And for the same reasons, there's a lot of people coming in and out of this area. But uh, uh, Cretan culture uh, itself was notorious at the time of this writing. Uh, here in Titus, he was sending him to a place where 
uh, the people and, and the area was known uh, for being tough and, and very unruly and, and deceptive in their dealings with others. Uh, Paul speaks to this by quoting a Cretan philosopher, uh, uh, Epimenides, here in verse number 12. You, you don't, we won't uh, read the whole passage there yet, just yet, but uh, just a quick reference. He says this of one of their, one of their own. Uh, one of the Cretes' own prophets has said it this way. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Um, the word Cretan there is not the same Cretan that uh, Elmer Fudd would call, or no, as a Yosemite Sam would call Bugs Bunny. You Cretan! Different kind of Cretan. Also has a tragic backstory for that word, but that's not the word here. Uh, but it ca- kind of carried a negative uh, connotation to the word. Uh, the Greek word kretizo uh, just means to be a Cretan, was the same word that was used to describe someone as being a liar. Not necessarily a compliment, but to the people of Crete, it didn't seem to be much of an insult either. It, it was almost a badge of honor to be able to get, uh, get an upper hand over someone. You see, they, they were heavily influenced by a Greek, what we would call Greek mythology, specifically Zeus, who uh, they, they believe was actually born in Crete. They would tell stories of him and how he would uh, uh, seduce women and would have a lot of uh, dealings that were he, he would, uh, in a deceptive way, get the upper hand over others. Uh, he, would, he was known to be a liar. And if you could fool or trick or get the upper hand over someone with deception... It was considered to be a masterful skill. And of course, if you were caught uh, in in whatever kind of deception you were trying to get over someone, it would come in handy that you were also a formidable warrior. They were known for being tough in this way, of being uh, uh, being able to handle themselves well. So even if you did did catch them, uh, it would seem as you probably wouldn't call them out on it either because of what it would escalate to. They really established themselves to be very much as, as pirates. At least that's what it, the area was known for. Not everyone there in Crete behaved this way, but that's what the area was, being, was known for. You'd, be, you'd have to be pretty brave uh, to go and uh, be amongst this area, uh, be amongst the people in this area. They were, uh, made themselves to be kind of carry on this reputation of being brutal pirates, uh, fierce warriors, uh, master ma- marine, uh, mariners. They, they were crafty in their trade deals. These traits were often attractive to uh, uh, surrounding ki- kings and rulers who were in need of uh, mercenary work uh, in the area at the time. Uh, Cretan fighters would often make themselves available uh, for uh, the highest bidder, basically. They would go to the highest bidder and uh, they would serve their financial backers with all forms of violence and treachery against those enemies. Uh, Crete was just not a nice place. The island and its people were known for their violence, their greed, and sexual corruption. Which sounds a lot like, well, it sounds like a perfect place to start a church, right? Paul wasn't just, you know, just looking for a challenge uh, to uh, start a church or to uh, actually in, help enrich a church uh, that was there in Crete. He wasn't just looking for a challenge when he started a network of, uh, of churches there from Crete. It was actually a very practical strategy to further spread the gospel message. Why? 
it's, it's in a very highly influenced area. Lots of people are coming in and out of this area. You see, Crete also served as a major harbor that serviced several cities all over the Mediterranean Sea. So churches established in Crete, in Crete had the, the potential of reaching many, many more people for the gospel. So it makes sense from a strategy standpoint. But this is more important than, than Paul's strategy. This is a God-ordained establishment of his people amongst the people of, uh, of Crete. But it was certainly an uphill battle, as we'll see here in a minute. At some point... I don't really have a lot of too many details on when this happened or how this happened, but at some point the churches at Crete came under the influence of its corrupt Cretan leaders. Uh, this is uh, this led. The, I mean, when you when you think of leadership it, itself, you got to recognize people will do what you do. Uh, I tell our small our our, our uh, servant leadership team we we gather with a group of high school students um, every Wednesday and every Sunday. Before anything starts, we do leadership training. And one of the things I tell them first is that, listen, leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. If you influence the life of another person, whether you like it or not, you are leading. Some people will utilize that influence for self-serving purposes, which we see here in Crete. Or some people would recognize that gift and utilize it for the benefit of others. God has called us to be servant leaders, to exercise uh, our influence for the benefit of others, to, to shine his light into the life of others. So the servant leadership team, that's what we call them, servant leaders. You, are ser- you lead by serving. You have influence already. I don't have to teach you that. I watch you and see how you engage with, other stu- with students. People care about where you are. People care about what you say. When, when, you, when you're talking, people are listening. Whether you like it or not, you are influencing. That comes with a responsibility. Leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And these guys, apparently those who had influence in this culture, were utilizing uh, that influence in the church for self-serving purposes. And Paul said, nah, that's not going to happen. We need to fix that. Titus, get in there. This led, this kind of leadership, uh, specifically within the church. It led to many in the church getting caught up in all sorts of cultural distractions and, and unethical behaviors. And that not only took them away from their gospel-spreading efforts, but it also dampened the credibility of the gospel itself, specifically in that area. And, and that's not all that different than it is today. Think about this. Think about one who claims faith. And yet the content of their life does not declare a transformed life. How many of you know those who claim faith and yet their unchaste behavior makes that faith claim kind of hard to believe? How many of us have sullied the reputation of Christianity simply by following the pattern of this world when others are watching? Or conforming to the lifestyles of our culture in one way or another. And thereby decreasing the value of the word Christianity or a Christ follower. That is what was happening on a magnified scale in the churches of Crete. And so Paul leaves Titus there to straighten it all out. 
So you see why it would have taken a lot of confidence and trust on, on Titus's, um, uh, at least trust in Titus on Paul's part, you know, to, to give him such a task. You know, I wonder, like, how many of you are the Titus of Calvary? That Pastor Mark, that Pastor Terry, that Pastor Victor would lean on and say, hey, I got something I need you to handle. You know, I need to go be about, you know, uh, the business of God in this area, but th- I, this can't be ignored. I need you. That's not passing. Paul was not passing the book. Okay, he was positioning someone who was built for this to do what needed to be done. Do we have Titus in this room, in our church? The fact that he left Titus there speaks a lot to the kind of unwavering man of faith that Titus must have been. Maybe he was a little guy. I don't know. Maybe he had all-out trust in the power of who God is. And that's why he had so much uh, spiritual authority behind those words. He spoke with conviction. There isn't a whole lot we know, like I said, directly about Titus. It's considerably less than what we know about Timothy. Uh, for instance, while Timothy's uh, letter that was, he received from Paul had this more uh, fatherly tone uh, you know, with the kind of uh, uh, intimacy you might see between a father and son, with Titus, it was all business. Okay? He got really down to the point. There was a greeting there in the beginning, which we'll read here in a second. Uh, but really, he, start, he got back into the nit and gritty. He's like, all right, here's, here's how I need you to do what you're there for, uh, there, there for to do. With Titus, it was all business. Uh, their letter itself was relatively short, uh, being only three chapters as we read it today, and it's very, very straightforward. However, this letter was not terse in any sort of way. Their relationship between Paul and Titus was actually very, very close, forged by many critical situations that Paul found himself in throughout his missionary journeys. So Titus was, was one that Paul often turned to to bring order some of the most difficult of circumstances. For, uh, for example, uh, Paul had Titus take a very important letter to the church of, in Corinth, uh, as we see in 2 Corinthians uh, 7, uh, that in that trip would not have been an easy trip or an easy journey for, for Titus or for any, any man for that matter. Uh, remember the ancient proverb that we looked at when we did our study through Corinth a while back? Uh, the proverb went like this. Uh, This was known to the people of the time, uh, this saying, uh, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Well, why not? Because of what was available to men at Corinth. It was a a place of heavy temptation, of heavy sin, of uh, uh, where where sinful lifestyles were not only approved of, they were applauded. It was hard to make this voyage. Why? Because... It was, just a, it was also a very terrible place. Corinth was well known for its practice of every form of debauchery and as a daily unchallenged lifestyle. Think of all the darkest corners of the darkest places of, of places like Vegas, New York, and L.A. all rolled up into one. That's kind of how Corinth must have been. And Paul sent Titus there with a letter that would directly chastise those lifestyles and behaviors. Like, all right, here, I need, to, I need to go take this to the church in Corinth. And Titus like, okay, I got it. It wasn't just because he was brave. 
but here, the amount of trust that Paul had in him, he had to have trusted Titus to not only to handle himself, but to be able to stand firm while delivering such a message. And so it is with the same confidence that Paul has, here, has in Titus when he leaves them at Crete to help this church, to help restore their, their spiritual health. You see, when Paul got out of, uh, out of the Roman prison and went to go visit some of the churches that he had planted in the previous missionary journeys, one of those places uh, was Crete. And he goes to that, and immediately, it didn't take him very long to see some of the major problems that they were having. And his heart was broken for them. Like I would imagine that as it would for, for any one of us who has a genuine desire to see the gospel message being, being spread out and seeing very real obstacles get in the way of that. But he also loved them. And so he quickly recognized the challenges that they faced and that they needed someone to help restore spiritual health to that congregation. They would need someone tough enough to withstand the wiles of the island and also be able to earn the respect of the Cretans themselves. Man, Titus sounds like quite a guy. Seems like Titus was the right man for the job. Oh, and as an added bonus... Titus was a Greek himself, so he could easily relate to the Gentiles in the, con- in the congregations. And, and as a close companion of Paul, he would also have, have formed a deep understanding of the needs of believing Jews in this church as well. Tell you, it couldn't be a more perfect person than Titus to be left here. He wasn't just someone who was available. That's good leadership. That is good leadership on Paul's part, putting someone who is positioned in the, in the way that God has wired them, has gifted them, to be successful. That's good leadership on Paul's part. But while he's there, Paul writes him this letter. He writes him this letter to encourage him and to instruct him on how he is to help the struggling church here in Crete. So How? That's what we're going to be talking about for the remainder of our time here. Um, Titus uh, was not instructed to take over this church. Okay? It wasn't to take over himself. Rather, he was to select and develop faithful and mature leaders from within the congregation. And so this epistle can be broken down into three sets of instructions on how Titus was to do that. So let's look at those, and then we'll consider one closing thought this, as this overarching theme that I want you to consider as we're going through this book in the following weeks. So uh, open with me to Titus, and we'll be in chapter 1. Um, this is uh, the very first thing that Paul calls, calls on Titus to accomplish here. It's, a couple, it's two tasks. The first set of instructions would be accomplishing two tasks uh, uh, to, to do first when he first gets there. And that's to appoint new leaders, elders. An elder is not just someone who's old. Okay? It's someone who leads the congregation by teaching the word. Okay? They're, they're also known as overseers, uh, uh, pastors and shepherds. They oversee the affairs of the church. And so he's going to give instructions on selecting guys who would accomplish this there. Uh, Titus, I don't want you to be the one or the only one that does this. 
And today, even here in our church, I, oh, we can't be the only ones that exercise uh, the, this type of leadership. And so there is a, a multitude of pastors. There's not one, one person here. Yeah, Pastor Mark, Pastor Terry, Pastor Victor. Today, we might uh, refer to them as pastors or shepherds. Uh, so Paul gives Titus the qualifications of someone to carry not just this office, but this role. It's not, it's not about titles here, guys, which this area was already struggling with, with in, in regards to power and utilizing that power in corrupt ways. It's not about giving them a title. It's about finding people who would advance the gospel message in a very particular way. And so he gave qualifications for those who would be called to this, mature fathers and husbands, people who were full of integrity, devotion to Christ. They, were, they exercised self-restraint, self-control. They were generous. They were people who you could trust. They were people who were respected in their families, in, uh, amongst, the, amongst their community. There are those who were sober-minded, and they were faithful and consistent in their handling of God's word. These are very, very important, important traits. And I, and I know we might be very tempted to be like, oh, okay, that's what the pastors need to be doing. That's, what the, pa- that's the qualifications of the pastor. Of ha- hey, uh, only the shepherds need to be uh, following after this. Uh, only, only, uh, only those who are in charge, the spiritual leader, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what they need to be doing. I, I like uh, what one guy said. I, I, I can't remember who said this, but it just stuck with me. What is good enough for pastors is good enough for you. No, he said what's good enough for pastors is good enough for those sitting in the pews. And, and I agree with that. These traits would be, in this time, a complete turnaround. It was a, these traits would be the complete opposite of normal Cretan culture. And we should stand out. Those of us who, who claim faith, we should stand out amongst the culture. When everyone's going in this direction for this particular reason, if we're going in a different direction, it should only be because we're following a different value system. And we don't have specific details, like I said, on how this corruption, um, these corrupt Cretan leaders began to influence the church and lead them down the wrong path. But that's how leadership works. Even if they had the truth in their mouth, they are looking at the content of their life and it didn't match what they're saying. When I tell you about influence, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. We, people will watch what you do and validate their own lives by what you're doing. Or by, what, what, by what you're not doing. You, you claim faith and yet you live in a particular kind of way or your mouth has this sort, this sort of language in it or your uh, affections are toward these sort of things. You are indirectly giving them permission by saying, I don't think God is going to judge me for these actions if you are a Christian and you're doing that. You guys ever heard actions speak louder than words? I, I mean, just, just, just for an example, well, would you guys just take your hands and, and just go like this? Don't hit your neighbor, but just, just want to show you something. Uh, see if we... Uh, to remember this and, and, and do this together this time. All right, when I, when I say go, I want you to clap with me. All right, but let's do this together as one unit. Ready? One, two, three. Go. People will do what you do, not what you say. If you wear the Christian T-shirt, Jesus is my homie. I mean, first of all, burn that shirt. Uh, 
or go back to the 90s, I don't know. Uh, secondly, it doesn't matter what the content of your speech is. If your life does not match what the word says, your faith claim means nothing. And the hard part is you can say, well, oh, fine, well, just don't listen to me. That's just not how it works. If you are a representation of Christ, if you are his representative, people are going to look to you. Let me, let me put this real simple. To some people, you will be the only picture of who God is in their life. What does God look like? Well, just don't follow me. No, it doesn't work that way. You claim faith. By default, we are to reflect his light, his way. People will do what you do, not what you say. Titus was to replace all these guys, was to replace the corrupt ones, the ones who utilize their influence, yes, but for self-serving purposes. Titus was to find suitable replacements for these corrupt leaders. And then, task number two, he was supposed to go confront the ones who were not doing it right. That sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, again, I am convicted on the kind of guy that Titus was. You say, okay, once you pick the good ones, go confront the bad ones. Okay. I mean, what do you mean, okay? I, wanna, I just want to be a fly on the wall, just watch, like, how is this supposed to happen? You know, and, and just see God at play with this, per, with, had to have had a, a, a balance of truth and grace. Where it's not just saying, you get out. However, it was hard words, which we'll see in a second. But also for the, uh, being mindful of the individual themselves. He was to uh, confront corrupt leaders and he identifies who they are. He makes it really clear. Titus, here's who you need to be looking for. It's going to be pretty obvious. I'm going to give you this list. It's those who claim to follow Jesus, but they themselves were insubordinate, gossipers, deceivers, motivated by greed. They would teach dishonestly and, and, and for monetary gain which was very much normal to the Cretan lifestyle. And this is what happens when the church adopts the philosophies and the ideas of the current culture and tries to mix it in with the truth of God. It just doesn't work. In fact, it's no truth at all. Just a little bit of dishonesty is enough for the people to exchange the truth for a lie. Isn't that the tactic of the enemy? Didn't Satan quote God's word to Eve in the garden and to Jesus in the wilderness and just mix in a little bit of twist, just a mix, in, mix in a little bit of lie, a little bit of poison? Yeah, he did. He mixed it in with just enough poison uh, to make it no truth at all. Do you know this is how rat poison works? Do you know that rat poison is 99.995 percent good food that means that pellet is 0.005 percent poison but it's enough to kill that rat mixing in 
The absolute truth of God's word in with the philosophies of man is no truth at all. It only creates confusion and makes a mess of things. And Paul says this about leaders who do this willfully. Verse 16, chapter 1, he says, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. Whoa. Some hard words. Those are some sharp words, but listen, when it comes to the integrity of the gospel, such opposition must be dealt with sharply and swiftly. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. People are looking at God by watching you. And if you have influence, you better believe that weight's going to feel a whole lot heavier. Who much is given, much is required, what the Bible says. That's not just a, a, a phrase from Spider-Man. Okay, to, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Okay, they got that from the Bible. To whom much is given, much is required. That's why it's such a good statement. You know what you've been given? You've been given the truth. You've been given transformational truth. Where when one believes it, their entire soul, their eternity is transformed. That's what you carry with you. I like St. Francis of Assisi when he said, uh, uh, preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, what? Use words. What does he refer- Use words. What is, what is he implying? Your Life is a declaration of the truth of the gospel. Or is it? That's what we're going to be covering as we go through this chapter, through these chapters, through this book. And I hope it would not just be a point of conviction, but rather it would be an encouraging, encouraging exhortation for everyone that's here. Let us reflect the glory and the light of who God is. Thank you.